following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Well, welcome back to the Larger for Life podcast, a journey through the Westminster Larger Catechism. We are tackling another three questions on this episode, maybe biting off a little bit more than we can chew, but we're going to try to handle question 21, 22, and 23 as the Larger Catechism speaks to the fall of man there in the Garden of Eden. Uh, in Genesis 3. Um, but before we get started and before I read the question, I am uh, I am gathered here with all of my co-hosts. Derek Bright literally just signed on, and I wish y'all could see his uh, glorious, unshaved face. If you know Derek Bright, you know that he has a beautiful red beard, and that red beard is now gone. And so it looks like we're gathered here with four adult ministers, well-seasoned in their training, and then one eight-year-old. But we're going to let him talk anyway, um, because we know that he is not eight years old, uh, and we know that he knows much. Well, yeah, I know. I'm I'm trying to be favorable here. I'm trying to be winsome. Uh, But... But we know that Derek probably has some great material here on the fall of man. Um, And so here in just a little bit, uh, we'll begin reading the question. But I want to uh, go ahead and let our uh, co-host give a a small hello. Uh, And so let's start with Sean Morse, hailing from the great state of Tennessee. Greetings and salutations, citizens. And then we have Stephen Spinnenweber hailing from DeSantis Land, Florida. Good to be back. And Nick Bullock, our now Texan colleague. Guten Tag, y'all. He brings back the German, even though he's living in New Braunfels. And then uh, we have Derek Bright, Aliceville, Alabama, better late than Spinning Weber. I think he means never, but better late than Spinning Weber. Well, good morning. Hope everyone's doing okay. It's, it's the afternoon, afternoon, Derek. We know you just woke up. It is. Oh, yeah. Well, it's. Yeah. Okay. I was going to try to spin this that I'm in a different time zone, but it's still lunchtime here. It's still. <laughs> somebody had a rough night trick or treating last night. He hit the uh, Snickers and the Milky Way just a little too hard. It sounds like still on that sugar crash. That's right. So, all right. Well, I'm a Twix man. I'm a Milk Duds man. I was stealing the all the only, kids' Milk Duds last night. The only one great. with the cookie, cookie crunch. The only one with the yeah. cookie crunch. Wait, which is the one that has the swirling chocolate in the commercials? I don't pay attention to candy commercials that that diligently, so I can't uh, speak to that. That's a Seinfeld reference. That's for our friend James Ritchie. Which one has the swirling chocolate in the commercials? They all have swirling chocolate in the commercials. Hot, hot take. Uh, I've never watched Seinfeld either, so I'm sorry. So guys, womp, get this. Womp. My kids are trick or treating in our our Texas neighborhood, 
And uh, there's one lady that's giving out candies wrapped in Whataburger chicken biscuit free giveaway tickets. <laughs> that, ah. That's when you know that you live in glory land. Nice. Mm. Oh, man. What a winner. What a winner. That is a winner. All right. Well, uh, let's jump into question 21. And the catechism question reads, did man continue in the estate wherein God at first created him? And the answer is, our first parents being left to the freedom of their own will through the temptation of Satan, transgressed the commandment of God in eating the forbidden fruit and thereby fell from the estate of innocence wherein they were created. And so I'm going to punt this on over to uh, to Sean to get us started. And let's just make a disclaimer. No one here believes that the forbidden fruit was an apple. We need to repeat that from last episode, uh, <laughs> despite what all your children's Bibles uh, say. Um, but Sean, take us away here with question 21. Well, it's a... Uh... Happy Providence that we are right here in the middle of the autumn season, colloquially known in America as fall, and today we're getting to talk about the fall. The fall, capital F, not lowercase f, the season, but capital F, the fall, uh, that is the fall of mankind into sin, as we start here in question 21. So our first parents, namely Adam and Eve, and we've spoken about this already in previous episodes, we've talked about uh, covenant representation. We've talked about federal headship, Adam being our first father, federally representing all the human race, which descends from him. So he's representing all of humanity in this action. And notice how the catechism question, rather the answer, is very keen to observe that there was freedom of the will. Now that's something we may want to touch on as the conversation gets going, because, you know, we're here as, as PCA men, and we live in the Reformed world, and many of our listeners live and 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 uh, operate within the Napark world, uh, general Reformed and Calvinistic world. And so these are not live arguments a whole lot. But for a number of our friends and neighbors, Christian friends and neighbors that live in different communions, different denominations, different theological uh, traditions, arguing arguments, I should say, about the nature of free will and the freedom of the will are very live. And... Uh, I suspect those of us who did not grow up Reformed and Presbyterian but came into the tradition in our later years, that was something we had to grapple with. I know I did. I, I grew up in the kind of theological environment where free will was hammered. We, you know, Man has free will. Man has free will. God doesn't force himself upon anyone. God doesn't compel anyone. And so there's this allergic reaction to things like foreordination or predestination or things of that nature. And it's the... the the phrase free will is often invoked as a kind of way to stop the conversation entirely, to shut it down. Well, I appreciate how the catechism gets at this doctrine that uh, there is a freedom of the will. Now, the problem is, is that sin ruins everything. Sin has warped and perverted and poisoned that original free will with which man was endowed. Um, certainly, you think of Luther's great theological treatise, The Bondage of the Will, or you think of Jonathan Edwards' The Freedom of the Will, and had they further explore uh, these distinctions and nuances. But right there at the get-go, we are reminded that Adam and Eve, in their state of innocency, in that state of paradise, before the corruption of sin entered into the equation, they had a freedom of will. They had the opportunity to do well and do right, 
or to do poorly. And unfortunately, we see here, through the temptation of Satan, they chose poorly. They transgressed the, the commandment of God in eating the forbidden fruit. And so they were in that estate of uh, passe, pacare. We've talked about those four categories of Thomas Boston's uh, human nature, uh, in human the, the fourfold nature, the fourfold state, rather. So we were in that first state, passe pacare. It's possible to sin, but here we are now. We are plunged from the estate of innocency wherein they were created. Now sin has entered into the equation. And we'll talk more about the, that second state of, that humanity was plunged into, uh, non-passe, non-pacare, not able to not sin. We'll talk about that as our conversation among these three questions continues. Sean, I was actually just teaching our middle school students through the Westminster Confession of Faith. Can't get enough of me, uh, that those Westminster standards. Uh, but chapter nine on free will, and G.I. Williamson is super helpful here when explaining when we talk about freedom of the will, we are talking about a man is free to do what he wants to do within the limits of his ability. Or that is according to his nature. And so Adam's nature pre-fall was inclined to all good. But as you said, it was passe pecari. It was possible to sin. It's non passe, non pecari for us now, uh, prior to salvation, of course, uh, do pardon my uh, get tongue tangling there. But um, no, I think I think we knew what you meant outside of Christ. It's outside not possible, of Christ. Not Picard. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so um, this freedom of the will, uh, you know, kind of the way that I explained it to our students was um, there was two options. There was obedience and disobedience. And we could say this, that even today, even to the unregenerate man, there is always the option not to sin. But by virtue of who the sinner is, right, he is not free. He is not capable of choosing what is right and pleasing to God by virtue of the fact that he has, as we're going to talk about, this fallen and totally depraved nature. The uh, soul that is set on the flesh cannot please God, right? It, it cannot. It's impossible. And then also Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it's impossible to please God. So... Adam had free will insofar as prior to the fall, he had the ability to uh, choose either good or evil. But like you said, he sadly chose evil. And here's something that I think we all have to kind of reckon with because Adam, or you used those words to describe Adam's relationship to us. He wasn't just merely an exemplar, but he was our federal head. And so some of our listeners, either themselves or maybe their friends, really kind of bristle at this idea that because Adam fell, we fell with him. But I might be getting a little bit ahead of myself because that's really question 22, talking about federal headship and our relation to Adam. But coming back to 21, that's the hard part here. There's a lot of overlap, right? Is that uh, Adam was required in the covenant of works to keep this probationary period, this, this test, and he failed, and he lost that freedom with which he was originally endued uh, and endowed with by God. So, Nick, why don't you tell us a little bit about this, this idea of probation? Uh, 
Adam being tested and and how his you know that estate wherein he was created it was dependent upon his performance during this probationary period. Well, in, in a real sense, whenever the Lord created man in His image and after His likeness, we have a God that does things. Uh, he He works out His own will in, in, in the midst of His creatures in eternity, and uh, He does so freely. And so, one might. You know, assume that whenever he makes his creature, specifically uh, the man Adam with his relationship to Eve as her representative, uh, that he has some freedom and he's given freedom within that creation uh, to operate. However, it's not freedom without guidelines. It's freedom under the direction of God. And it's really a question of obedience. Will the, will the creature obey? Will he be like his God even as he looks and is like his God? Will his actions show that forward? And so the Lord uh, gave Adam into a, what's been called sometimes the probationary period, uh, where, as Sean has mentioned before, uh, he was able to sin and able not to sin, uh, free to righteousness, but also still with the capacity to fall. Um, and so that's really where we see Adam as in the, in the first portion of his uh, created frame, uh, as, as having... Yes, the likeness of God, but also the freedom um, to to transgress God. You know, I've I've heard this brought up before, and I want to see what y'all think about this, because because question twenty one here in the larger catechism speaks to this a state of innocency uh, that Adam and Eve were created in, uh, and therefore the fall uh, into sin required an external tempter and it seems as if the catechism does lend itself to to this mindset because it very quickly tells us that our first parents adam and eve had their own will to choose good and evil through this uh testing this testing period and it and they fall because of the temptation of satan and so is it appropriate to think or to, or to claim that the catechisms and the scriptures are, are teaching us that, that it required an external temptation, an external pressure to, to choose evil, and, and that therefore requires Satan in the form of a serpent to, to come and, and to tempt Eve, uh, and then uh, ultimately to cause Adam to fall as well. Do y'all think that's a fair assessment? When, when people are given commentary to the fall of man and, and even largely the, the commentary to the, to the catechism question here? You know, Matt, I think it's pretty fair. Oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead, Nick. Well, I, I was going to just say yes, and I, I think it really relates to the, the reality of man actually having the Imago Dei, uh, a perfect Imago Dei. He really is in the image and the likeness of God as God is without a spot of unrighteousness or unholiness, um, completely free from sin. Anything less than that, if, if, if it didn't necessitate an outside instigator to sin, uh, then it would be saying something about the character of God who created man in his, in his own image and after his likeness. So I'll punt that back to Sean. Sorry, man. No, it's good. I, we're, we're tracking along the same lines, as you were saying. They were in a state of paradise. They were in a state of innocence. They were in a state of original uh, purity and, and, and wholeness, um, such that 
there was no flaw within them when God made them in perfection. There was no flaw within their emotional constitution. There was no flaw within their mental capacity. Uh, and J.G. Voss seems to be tracking uh, right along with us in his comments on this very question. This is in his commentary on this question. Uh, question 21, um, he asks this, What great mystery is involved in the Bible account of the fall? He says, The problem of the origin of evil in the human race. Since Adam and Eve were created in a state of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, there was no evil in their nature to which temptation could appeal. Since they were created in righteousness, evil had to enter their lives from an outside source. But how could temptation to commit sin make a real appeal to a sinless being? What motive could have more influence in a sinless person than the motive to obey God? So he... he he answers that question along with what we are thinking here, but then he has some follow-up thoughts there as well that, that are worth uh, discussing and extrapolating and considering uh, furthermore. Well, you know, one of the things that I, I think is so fascinating is when, when, when Adam and Eve fall, uh, when they transgress the law of God, you see how sin begins to impact their heart and their mind uh, almost immediately. Not only, you know, and I don't want to get too far ahead of us, but not only do they hide in their shame, you know, because they realize that they're naked, uh, but immediately when when Adam is confronted by God for his transgression, for his sin, he begins to, to push the blame upon uh, his wife and even beyond God himself. It's this woman that you gave me. Um, and, and so you, you see how distorted and depraved the Imago Dei gets within the human race immediately as sin uh, enters into the world at the first transgression. It's, it's pretty fascinating that, that now Adam and Eve set almost the pattern that we see in sin um, today in Genesis 3. Um, and, and so... You know, when, when we begin to talk about, you know, our fall because of the federal head that that's, that spin is already brought up, you, you'll see how our inclination now is to fall into the same traps, the same depravity in which our first uh, parents fell into uh, as sin is introduced into the world. Yeah, that's right. And and it is a mystery. You know, you, you pose the question, Matt, as it's been posed by other theologians and others. And the the answer that that Voss seems to give both in in section five and section six of his meditation upon this question is basically a we can ascertain the mystery insofar as ascertaining that it is a mystery but it is an indissoluble mystery Here, here's what he goes on to say as as he's trying to help his readers think through these are sinless beings with no flaw in their heart so it had to come from an external source that temptation namely satan but there's no flaw within them to which that sinful notion could appeal. So how did this work? Well, he says this, we should accept what the Bible teaches about it in simple faith and recognize that the psychological problem of the origin of evil in the human race is an insoluble mystery. The information which the Bible provides may be summarized like this. A, our first parents were sinless as they came from the hand of God. B, sin entered the human race from an outside source, namely from the temptation of Satan. C, Satan tempted Eve through appealing to desires which are not sinful in themselves, but morally indifferent. 
but which it is sinful to gratify by disobedience to a direct command of God. D, the temptation came to Adam not directly from Satan, but through Eve, who had already sinned. E, although the psychological problem is insoluble, there is not the slightest doubt as to the fact that mankind, although created holy, was tempted by Satan and thereupon fell into an estate of sin. And so in a very eloquent, pastoral, and exegetical way, I think that Voss helps us realize we could go back and forth all day as to trying to grapple our, our about the nature of this mystery and get our heads around the mystery of how did sin tempt a sinless people? How did it work? How did it ensnare them when there was nothing flawed within them? And whatever answer you want to come up with, at the end of the day, the fact is sin entered into the world and sin ruined everything. And mankind was plunged out of that state of innocency into ruinous sin. And therefore, we have a major problem on our hands. So I would also, uh, that's all good. Um, and I would add to that, that it's important that we realize that it's, that it was uh, external temptations were necessary because when we relate it to the work of Christ, who as the second Adam it succeeds where the first Adam fell. And you think about, the temptation in the um, in the wilderness and how that mirrors the garden and all of those things. All of Christ's temptations were external. You know, he didn't have an inward temptation to sin because he didn't have a corrupt sin nature. So Jesus didn't, you know, formulate uh, bad thoughts or sinful thoughts or uh, sinful desires in his own heart. They were all external. So I think that if you if you think that first Adam had a sin nature, you know, um, that he wasn't created in, um, uh, you know, a sinless uh, estate, then I think it's a, uh, that would be a position that would put the sinlessness of cross human nature at risk. I think you're making a really good point there, Derek. It's, um... Of course I am. <laughs> <laughs> You know, our theology of the first Adam will inevitably necessitate a change in the theology we have of the second Adam. It's it's an inescapable reality. Uh, these things are so theologically linked. Uh, to change the topic slightly uh, on 21, I think we ought to consider a little bit about the wickedness of the temptation that Satan did bring. Uh, the Catechism makes the positive assertion that our first parents were left to the freedom of their own will. Uh, and that's exactly where Satan then turns to tempt them. Uh, his assertion, do this and you'll be like God, um, more than even their image bearing or their form has to do with the question of freedom, because the whole question was, will you obey or will you disobey? It's a question of whether or not they actually had free will. Um, that, you know, Satan understands that God is free and can do whatever he pleases. He has ultimate, eternal, perfect free will. And the temptation then being tossed towards Adam and Eve, our first parents, was, but maybe you don't actually have that freedom because God forbade you from eating. But the Catechism's assertion was they actually did have that freedom. It was actually a question of the obedience of the heart and of the affections. And that's so much more wicked whenever you frame it in that sort of uh, light, because what you see is it's really uh, not just an attack against 
the man and the woman, it's an attack against the goodness of God and his willingness to give good things to his children. I was reading uh, Sinclair Ferguson's commentary on the book of Philippians, the Let's Study series with the banner of truth. And he makes this great biblical theological connection in Philippians 2, where it speaks of Christ, who, though he's in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he kind of zeroes in on that verb grasp and takes us all the way back to the garden because that's what Adam and Eve tried to do. They tried to grasp at equality with God. They wanted to know good from evil like God. And this is fundamentally, right, the problem with humanity ever since the garden is that we try to reverse or invert the creator-creature distinction. Uh, we try to be in the driver's seat, the captain of our soul, or however the Invictus prayer goes. We try to know, and we try to blur the lines or set the terms of what constitutes good and what constitutes evil. We try to, as the Johnny Cash song, we, we try to have the kingdom, but we don't want God in it, right? Uh, we, we try to be kings ourselves, and that hasn't worked very well. So, yeah. And, and you know, Spen, that makes a really good segue because we do live in such a democratic age, um, whether it's about our politics or about the way that we ourselves want to run our lives. We want freedom and we want to be a people that represent ourselves and are accountable only to the things that we do and, and usually only accountable to our own rules. And this joints specifically to question 22, where the divines ask, did all mankind fall in that first transgression? They answer, the covenant being made with Adam as a public person, not for himself only, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. And let me say, friends, if you want to get people worked up, tell them that they're accountable for things that other people have done. We live in an age where that's unbearable for very many. Uh, this sort of covenantal federal relationship of one person to another. Now, I, I do want to say that I do realize that as Western people, uh, we live in governments that are almost always federal. There's representation, there's a democratic vote, yet there's this person who's going to go and you hope is going to act on your uh, best interest and do the things that you would prefer them to do. Uh, however, nonetheless, we still experience just regularly uh, this sort of thing. But spiritually, this is a new category for some. And so I want to kick this over to Sean and uh, see what you have to say about Federal covenant representation, the representation of Adam. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of jokes in there about, you know, is this you know, federal government, this, that, and the other. Um, but actually, when we better understand Republican, lowercase r, representative federal government, it does help us uh, get our heads around covenant representation. Um, the way it was explained to me years ago, at least a, a helpful example of it is, I mean, you can even think of this in modern um, Democratic Republic America. Pretend, for example, that America's at war with our, our neighbors to the north, with Canada. And there's all kinds of folks in the population that object to it. Well, I, I, I don't like this war. I don't agree with this war. I object to this war. Uh, I didn't vote for this war. 
Well, be that as it may, your representatives in Congress did vote to go to war, and at war you are, whether you like it or not. Uh, your nation is at war, whether or not you object to it, whether or not you, you personally, you were not on Capitol Hill. You didn't, you didn't cast a ballot to say, I'm, let's go to war with Canada and uh, hornswoggle all their moose and take all their maple syrup and then have them apologize to us for making it so inconvenient in the first place. You may not have opted to do that, but nevertheless, your nation is at war with that country, whether you like it or not, because someone acted on your behalf. Uh, whether or not you participated in this vote, whether or not you're a soldier that's going to march across the border. Uh, something like that. That's somewhat analogous to what's happening here, spiritually speaking, with our federal representative, Adam. Uh, all who are descended from him by ordinary generation. That's a, a, that's a polite and fancy way of saying that all human babies come by ordinary means through which human babies are procreated. So, in a sense, all the human race existed in seed form within our father Adam. And so, as he's representing and standing in for all the human race, he's, he's sinning, and we are all cursed, doomed, and damned as a result. Spin, you were leading in to make a comment just a moment ago. Go ahead. So I can't say not my Adam? You can't. You can't. In the same way that some uh, political rallies would say, you know, not my president, or not my king, or not my chancellor. Uh, I guess you could say it, but it wouldn't make any difference. Not my Adam. He is your federal representative and your federal head by nature, whether you care for it or not. And before we think that that sounds terribly unfair, what would have been true for all of us had Adam kept the covenant of works, had succeeded and done all that God had required of him, we would have stood to inherit that blessed life and that reward that he would have procured by way of his obedience. And none of us would say, that's not fair, right? I, I kind of liken this to when teaching students, uh, my associate and I, we alternate teaching adult classes and youth classes. We love that balance and we love being pastors to all. But what, what I love is uh, to explain to my, my kids that are into sports, if you have a player on your team who misses the penalty kicks, right? Uh, your whole team loses. But if that representative of your team makes those penalty kicks, that they do that in soccer, right? In the uh, fake football, the other football. Uh, oh, foot, football, yes. You did just come back from Honduras. Wonderful accent. Si. But if they make that goal, everybody succeeds. We all win with him. And so when you think about that federal, and this is where we have to get to going back to Nick's point, how you think about your relationship to the first Adam will color the way that you perceive and understand your relationship to the second Adam. If righteousness is received not by our actually doing righteous things and perfectly keeping the law, right, but having the imputation of Christ's active and passive obedience given to us by grace through faith, well, then we would also say that there is an imputation. Would you all say it's proper to say that we also have Adam's original sin and guilt imputed to us so that we are born, as we'll see, originally sinful? Fair to say? Yes, I think that's fair. And I think you bring up a, a really good point, Spin, because we, we shout out uh, in Genesis 3 that the federal headship of Adam causing our uh, our universal fall into sin uh in the human race 
is not fair, but we love to say that Jesus uh, and his accomplishments and and how he is our federal head in, in Romans chapter six is a glorious gospel truth. I mean, we can't have one without uh, the other, can we? And and it, you know, it it really is you know interesting. And I know that we're needing to segue over into our our next question, question twenty three. But you know. I think we need to pause here for a second and, and think about how deceiving uh, Satan really is and, and the way that he he often works. Uh, he knew exactly how to target Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, and and he was successful in that. And now he knows how to target us as well. Uh, and because he you know, tried to, and we brought this up already, because he tried to reverse the order uh, that Adam and Eve can be somewhat of the creator. Uh, they can they can blaze their own pathways, right? And and be God. Uh, isn't that really the the seed form of all the sins that, that we commit uh, within our own hearts? Um, you know, Romans chapter one, they worship the created things rather than the creator, because somehow they flipped it and realized uh, through the temptation of the evil one and now the, the sinful inclination of self that that we can falsely, yes. But, but the thought is that we can do things on, on our terms, that we can have this kind of rugged individualism uh, that exists within our culture today. Um, and so it's, it's really intriguing to me how, how blatant... Uh, or how obvious, maybe I rather would say, that the catechism's putting before us the, the devil's playbook and how he, he tempts the people of God to despair. Yeah, that's right. And before we jump into that uh, third question that in our triad that we're taking on here in today's episode, just a, a few thoughts that I wanted to highlight. I One, this is sort of covering both questions 21 and 22, but I just really appreciated the thoughts that Voss offered regarding Adam and Eve and their, their respective sins. Um, he says this, what was the difference between the sin committed by Adam and the sin committed by Eve? And he says, go back and read 1 Timothy 2, verse 14. Eve was deceived by Satan and thereupon sinned. Adam was not deceived, but disobeyed God anyway. <laughs> Just No sin is good. All sin is awful. It's weighty. It's heavy. It's, it's grievous. But I do appreciate the sort of reserved and restrained way that Voss is, is essentially saying, it, 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 by his words, it's almost as if we want to grab Adam by the shoulders and shake him and say, you fool, you fool, what were you thinking? And then, as he says, which was worse? Voss goes on, the sin of Adam or the sin of Eve? And he says, undoubtedly, Adam's sin was worse than Eve's. It is bad to sin because a person has been deceived by Satan. So, Eve. It is much worse to commit the same sin without having been deceived. That is fully realizing that it is contrary to God's will. Adam received God's instruction from his creator. He knew full well what was expected of him. He knew full well what was wrong. He, wasn't, he didn't have confusion or deception sown into his mind by Satan, by the, the, the prince of demons, and yet he disobeyed God anyway. He disobeyed God anyway. What a fool. So I appreciate that distinction of the weightiness or the grievousness between the sins that are committed 
uh, by the husband and wife there uh, that Voss highlights. And then the other thing to note, more related to question 22 before we jump into 23, is just the, the, the federal theology uh, that's highlighted for us, like in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. These are the, some of the classic verses that we all think of in terms of this kinds of theology. Uh, but Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, namely Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So there it is. There's that first representative ruining everything because of sin. Uh, verse 14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, but was a type of the one who was to come. Uh, skipping down, for if, verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, namely Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So there's that federal theology all over Romans 5. It's also all over 1 Corinthians 15. I won't read it at length, but just that, that classic verse, verse 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, namely Adam, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. We, we think of, I always think of the, the Handel Oratorio, that movement from Handel's Messiah, that's always going playing in the back of my head. Uh, when I read that line from 1 Corinthians 15, but it's perennially relevant, uh, certainly for gospel encouragement, but even as we're thinking about here this morning regarding federal or covenant or representative theology. Uh, before we skip ahead, I wanted to, if I may, back us up for just a second to make some distinction um, and to, to maybe help some of our listeners who could be struggling with the language of federal headship. Um, it is true that federal headship is representation. However, it's not political representation like what we experience in a one-for-one -one analogy, okay? Uh, we are constituents that vote on our representative. Uh, that's the regular understanding and experience of most people who engage in uh, political um, service or duty uh, as a citizen. Uh, our relationship to Adam, yes, it's representative. However, we are not constituents. We are his inheritance uh, or his, his progeny, as has been distinguished here as his posterity uh, by the Westminster divines. Uh, there's this natural descent. And why do I make that as a, a real distinction? Because, well, significantly, they're different things. Uh, people have that issue of not my president, not my representative or chancellor, or whatever you want to say about things. Right. Because you have this person that does something you would not like. And you would say in yourself, I would never do that. They've done something unlike me. That doesn't represent me in the way in which I prefer to be represented. Now, a sinner, uh, any human on the planet who's part of the posterity of the first Adam will say, well, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have wanted Adam to, to take uh, of the fruit. I wouldn't have wanted him to, wanted him to cave into the temptation. Uh, he's not a good representative of me. And, and what I would say is, friend, uh, this again is different. You are not a constituent. Uh, you are his posterity. You are his progeny. And that has been uh, decided not by you. You were not the electing uh, elector in this circumstance. 
Now, that's God. Uh, his view of the soul of Adam is perfect. It's not limited as ours would be with a candidate for office, but rather was absolute and sufficient in its wisdom that Adam would do precisely as we would do. And, and this is one of those things where I want to take a second to back us up uh, a little bit too, uh, to the, the idea of imputation, okay? What we have here in the language of the Shorter Catechism is slightly different language. It's not the alien imputed aspect of the guilt or the sinfulness of, of Adam, but rather the language that we sinned in him and fell with him. Uh, the language we would use of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ would not be that we were righteous in his righteousness. We've received that righteous account, but rather here there's very per peculiar language that the Bible likewise shares uh, of, of our participatory um, accountability in the fall of Adam. It, it's sin that inheres in us that uh, is natural, that's original to our frame and our person. Um, so I, if I'm splitting hairs, I don't know that I would say you can't say an imputation of Adam's sinfulness, but rather we have an even nearer uh, estimation of this sin and this guilt and the fall than, than just it having been something received, because it is as it were, according to our natures and according to our being united with the first Adam as well. Yeah, good nuggets to ponder. Derek, you had something to add here as well. Yeah, just a quick note that, you know, this shows the importance of believing in a historical Adam. Mm -hmm. And why, if you don't believe in a historical Adam, uh, you have no gospel. And... So it's imperative that we understand that uh, all of these things are connected, as we've said a couple of times already. Um, but if you don't have a historical Adam and a historical head, then, um, you know, I, I'm not sure that you can clearly articulate and fully articulate the truth of the gospel. So, um, you know, and just one little side thought, isn't it amazing how, Virtually every big major screw up in the Bible has the woman at, at, a heart, at the heart of it. <laughs> you know, I say that to my congregation sometimes in a joking manner, and you can just see all the wives. They're like, oh, this again. <laughs> you get, you're known for your furrowed brow, but I am sure that every womanly brow in that congregation <laughs> furrows at you with an intensity that could melt even your soul. Uh, I'd love to be a fly on the wall at Aliceville. <laughs> when you pop that one-liner. Um, goodness. So here, guys, we've got the fall. And these that's what's the common denominator among all three of these questions. They're all talking about the fall. They're talking about how he fell. Uh, they're talking about uh, the consequence of the fall regarding man in his nature. And then and that's, we and all that's the theological and the sinful fall. That's not crisp autumn leaves, pumpkin spice lattes, and puffy vest, Charles Stover. Okay? It's not that fall. It's not that fall, Charles, and um, we, you know, we are going to be starting the human fund for Charles. And uh, what estate did the fall bring mankind? Question twenty-three: The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and 
misery. So let's talk about that with the time that we have. I feel like we've been circling it, right? You know, it's hard not to, it's the air we breathe, right? Uh, but this, this 23rd question, um, mankind, all mankind is brought into a, uh, in a state of sin and misery. So does this, is, I'll, I'll ask this, is it limited only to mankind? Uh, because question 23 obviously has mankind in view particularly, but uh, what are, what's the total effect of the fall, guys? Uh, because I look at the ministry of Jesus, and it seems like the fall touches everything. In, indeed. I'll say a word here, and then I want to I toss it over to Matt, because I know he has, uh, he has a, a really relevant anecdote uh, regarding the theology and, and this topic uh, in front of us. But quite simply, Romans chapter 8, creation is groaning and has been groaning. Uh, as a consequence and as a result of the fall. So it seems to me creation beyond mere mankind, so plants, trees, animals, rocks, and rivers, and so forth, have been tainted, have been affected, uh, have been maligned by the fall. As I tell my kids all the time, sin ruins everything. Sin ruins everything. It has had a cosmic and cosmological effect, even down to the molecules that will become malignant and turn into cancer to the very air that we breathe as well as to our uh, spiritual economy uh, and our standing before God. Sin ruins everything. Matt, let me punt it over to you. Well, yeah, because, you know, we, we believe in something called total depravity, right? And it stems from the, the fall of Adam and Eve uh, in the garden, being our federal heads, passing down a sin nature uh, to each and every one of us. And so, you know, when we particularly look at the fall of mankind, uh, the idea of total depravity really sits wrong with people. Um, you know, I was in a philosophy class in, in college, and I remember our philosophy uh, professor asked the, the question, are we born evil, good, or neutral? Now, my professor was Greek Orthodox, uh, but we had to separate ourselves in in the in the classroom uh, according to what you thought. And so the the good was on the far right, evil far left, neutral in the middle. And in a class of probably about fifty people, um, thirty of them picked neutral, nineteen of them picked good. And as the sole person uh, over on the far left side. Um, maybe the only time I can say that I was standing on the far left, but any over there on the far left side, you know, I was standing there all alone, um, saying that we're born evil. Uh, and that's what, that's what this catechism question is really trying to, to hit on because the fall brought mankind into an estate of, of sin and misery. We are born sinful people. David says, uh, as my mother conceived me, I was conceived sinful. Um, and so even those little itty babies that we, we love to hold and we think so cute, they have a sin nature that has corrupted uh, their, their very uh, existence. Um, and, and so we, we really need to be careful in, in understanding and articulating that our need of a Savior comes from the very institution that we're born evil. We're born with a sin nature, uh, and therefore we need uh, the righteousness of Christ and, and the redeeming power of his, of his work. 
No, that's right. Do we sin because we're sinners, or are we sinners because we sin? And of course, the answer is because we are sinners, that is why we sin. The, the nature predisposes us to do the sinning. Um, I often will give this illustration, particularly to the younger children in our church, and use my, my pathetic excuse of a dog for an example. But if he were a real dog and a real beagle, right? Beagles chase rabbits. They're bred to chase rabbits. They're bred to hunt. Because he is a beagle, because he has those instincts, therefore he chases rabbits and chases foxes and so forth. If I walked on four legs and went through the woods and chased rabbits and chased beagles, would that make me, uh, chase rabbits and foxes, would that make me a beagle? Would that make me a dog? No, of course not. But because of his dogness, therefore he does these things. He has an inherent nature that makes him act in a certain way. Well, so it is with the sinner. Because I am a sinner, because I'm born a sinner with that sin nature, therefore I act in a certain way. I'm predisposed inherently to do sin. So getting, getting the order, it may seem pedantic, but getting that order in the right order uh, is theologically significant. The inherent dogness of Sean. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's the next book coming out. Well, friends, with that mental picture of Sean Morris on all fours playing as a doggy in the wilderness... We'd like to thank you for joining us as we've considered these heavy topics, the topic of the fall, the sin of humanity, uh, the federal headship of Adam. Uh, we do hope that you'll join us again. And until then, this has been Larger for Life. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. Larger for Life.